Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult series. Be sure to visit primed.com podcast after the discussion for more information about today's article and to claim CME-CE credit. Lori P. is a nurse practitioner serving a primarily underserved, low-income setting. It's Friday afternoon and she's exhausted because after this week, she once again realizes that the burden of obesity on her patients is far outstrips her ability to address it. She wonders, is there ever going to be a way she'll be able to provide care that's effective and beneficial for her low-income population? Hi, this is Frank Domino, and joining me today is Susan Feeney, Assistant Professor and Director of the Nurse Practitioners Track at the University of Massachusetts Medical School's Graduate School of Nursing. Thank you, Susan, for coming today. My pleasure. So um, I take care of a low-income population as well. And yep. obesity affects far, you know, easily 50% of that population. Right. Um, what are some of the common barriers to positive behavioral change in this population, and, and what can we do about it? Well, you know, you, you, uh, you're, you listen to the story of Lori, and you think about your patients that you take care of, and sometimes you just feel like you're hitting your head against a wall because not only are there barriers on the patient side, there's barriers on our side. So we know that... Studies have shown that the counseling done by primary care on these topics across the board, regardless of socioeconomic class, has declined. Uh, part of it is because we don't have the time in our practices. There, you know, there's always the bottom line of seeing more people, and so that's a problem. So it's a problem on like provider inertia, provider, um, you know, the concept of we don't get reimbursed at a rate. For the, and actually, it's one of the most important interventions we can do. Also, um, there's, li again, limited time. And there's also lack of training. Most providers come to this, and they're, they may have a little bit of information on motivational interviewing, but they may have no idea on how to reach people that are from maybe a different culture or different ethnicity than themselves and, and a, don't have the access to, to um you know, maybe living in a food desert or don't have the adequate amount of information to get to a uh, to get adequate nutrition. The provider may not understand the the food choices that are that are being offered and what type of activity they might these their patients might be able to do. So there are multiple uh, barriers, and but I would say probably the the biggest on the provider side, as I said, you know, problem with reimbursement, lack of time, lack of training. Uh, lack and uh, lack of resources. And then for our patients, it's, again, sort of a lack of information on how to adequately change their diet, um, motivate to do that, and um, what are their resources in the environment. So it's sort of a, you know, this, this uh, tipping point of, of just continuing to have poor outcomes based on, on obesity. So are, are there any is there any data that shows um, addressing um, obesity in uh, this population as being effective? There, there is. There's a wealth of information. And back in the early 
2000s, there was the the ADA came out with a program called the Diabetes. Um, I think it was the Diabetes Prevention Program that looked at intensive lifestyle uh, interventions and saw that with this intensive lifestyle modification. Um, there, people lost weight and kept it off. And so recently, there was a very large uh, um, randomized controlled trial actually out of Louisiana. They did 18 uh, clinics where primarily, you know, uh, 60% or more were from low income um, with low income uh, patients. And they used a, a um, combination of this DPP or the Diabetes Prevention Program. They also looked at a couple of other interventions and melded it together and put together this intensive lifestyle modification program in all of these 18 clinics. And they had a randomized controlled trial so that those who um, were not in the intervention arm got what we call usual care, which is what we do, like you should lose weight and why don't you eat better, that kind of thing. And what they found is they had a, they had a significant weight loss that was sustained over 24 months um, in this group. And um, so th that is really great information um, that, that, that what it tells us is you need a sustained program where you're in contact with your patients, you set goals, you have reasonable goals, um, and you, you put those into place and you have a sustained program over 24 months or more, and you can make a difference. Because we know there's all kinds of evidence of weight loss is associated with better outcomes. We, that, that's well known, especially with diabetes. And we know that we can prevent diabetes in certain folks if they lose weight. And the, the diabetic prevention program used a 7% uh, uh, weight loss as their goal. And so that was what was used in this trial. So it's, oh. it's really positive. All right. So you've talked a lot about this intensive program and this randomized yeah. trial. Can uh, you give us some of the specifics about what was, what was done in this program and, uh, oh. and, 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 you know, give us some idea of the implications of, of doing something this intensive. So it's, it's, when they say intensive, they mean intensive. So that every person who enrolled in the intensive, who was in the in intervention arm, had a case manager. And the case manager was either a dietitian or a health educator or someone with, with that type of knowledge. And there was a core curriculum. Core, cur core curriculum was anywhere from a half hour to an hour that talked about food choices and talked to each patient, each participant about you know, getting to know what their choices were. So again, speaking to not a one size fits all. What do you eat? How can we modify your diet and your life and your culture so that this meets these needs? So, and once they had established with a case manager, they they had, you know, true goals for weight and activity. Um, they had frequent contact with the um, with the care managers, um, and you know, they they had like over the first six months, it was weekly, then it went to monthly, and then it continued out for uh, a total of 24 months. And what they saw was that frequent check-in, which was done by phone, uh, and, and they didn't talk about apps or anything, but it was talked about by phone, made a difference. People felt connected and they lost weight. So, you know, the implication is, I mean, this, this is a 
This is a big program. This is a an intensive program. But, you know, when you think about all the time that is spent in the exam room, um, sort of talking at patients, that's not making a difference. So this uh, really talks to folks from low-income low strata, meeting them where they are and helping them make the changes on an individual basis versus some of the group interventions that we've done in the past. Now, now I know they used uh, 7% weight loss like the, the diabetes prevention trial, but the intervention reduced weight by 5%. And we know in particular for patients who have BMIs over 30, a 5% weight loss can reverse type 2 diabetes if done Absolutely. early. It lowers blood pressure and improves so many health outcomes. Um, this is a great finding, um, but we, we all work in systems where we can't afford or we don't yet have a dietitian or a social worker to assign to each patient. H how do you see this playing out in our future? Do you think this well, paper will change uh, what happens? I'm hoping it will because, you know, we keep talking about social determinants of health and we still don't do anything about it. And this really looks at, you know, by individualizing this and bringing it to the patient on a regular basis, on a on frequent frequent contact, you can make a difference. And it's short-term money to long-term money, right? And it's and, and healthcare systems would rather make keep solvent upfront than to look down the road. But the truth is, I think that providers need to take this study to their office managers and say, let me tell you how much time I spend in each visit, and these are the outcomes that I'm getting, right? As opposed to let's look about reallocating maybe time and, and resources, because what they did in the DPP trial is they, they each each case manager had about 40 patients. So, you know, that if you kind of think about this as far as time and money, you may be able to convince people at the higher level that this really is a cost savings and it's an outcome boost. And I would imagine that our, you know, our insurers would be happy to see this as well um, because of the terrible outcomes with diabetes and heart disease. And um, the other thing is, I think with because of what we're dealing with right now with tele, with um, COVID, we've changed our paradigm and we're looking more at telehealth interventions, and this would fall right into that. The patients are more comfortable with this now, um, that this is something that could be done remotely um, and therefore probably more, more efficiently. So that's how I see it ideally going out is, is getting buy-in from your provider. And so we as provide from your management, you can no longer be passive and say, okay, this is just how things are. You need to bring studies like this forward to your practice managers and say, this is a way that, uh, of evidence that we can improve outcomes and hopefully reduce um, healthcare costs in the long run. I mean, obviously patient outcome is the most important, but when you're dealing with this type of a project, you have to have a financial incentive. And I would think that um, having, you know, um, improved outcomes has got to be a good a good thing. Well, Susan, um, one final thought: uh, if you're trying to help patients, especially low-income patients, uh, address their social determinants of health, uh, the American Academy of Family Physicians has a neighborhood navigator. If you Google AAFP neighborhood navigator, you can put in your your zip code of your patient, and they have a variety of freely available resources for you and your patients. And included among that is dietary counseling. 
Additionally, you know how critical I am of my with being epically challenged with my electronic medical record. If you use the My Chart app, the very right. first button on the home screen is Community Help, and it allows you to put in the patient's locale, and again offers you a variety of options that address. A, a huge number of things. So there are ways that we can apply this now, and hopefully based upon this paper, there will be some more structured, uniform way that we address it throughout community. Susan, thanks so much for, for discussing this paper today. Thank you for allowing me and inviting me, and I hope it makes changes. Thanks, Frank. Bye-bye. Bye. Practice pointer. New evidence suggests an intensive behavioral intervention for weight loss is effective for obese individuals in underserved settings. Remember, it's a long-term commitment both on the patient's part as well as the clinician's part to help patients achieve their health goals. Join us next time when we discuss the use of statins for primary prevention in our elderly patients. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, visit primemed.com slash podcast and see you next week.